It's time for Heavy Petting on CliffCentral.com with myself, Leanne Mole, every Wednesday, 10 a.m. till 11. And uh, this week, we've got quite a few things to look forward to. I'm not bringing any animals into the studio this week, much to Damon Calvary's disappointment. You'll know Damon from the morning show on Cliff Central. Um, and he has recommended that I bring in a sea lion. <clears throat> really practical, Damon. Thank you. We're, we're two floors up in the middle of Johannesburg. Uh, on a, a hot summer's day. It, yeah. <clears throat> um, and then I'm also going to chat to Jeffrey, who works at Cliff Central. Um, he recently adopted an animal from Ark Animal Center, and we recently had Ark on the show. Very excited about that, and he's running around like a proud dad, showing off his photograph of his new baby. Um, we'll look at the most intelligent dog, dog breeds in the world, now that we've finished our list of the most popular breeds in South Africa. Um, we find out why cats need, lots of theories going on about that. We chat to Safari Group, Sangeeta, which is making a huge difference to conservation across Africa. And the shocking amount of foods that we'll lose forever if bees become extinct. Well, let's get right into it with animals in the news here on Heavy Petting. Um, a man who was killed by a shark during a swim in Australia this week has been identified as Paul Wilcox, a 50-year-old British expat. The shark attack took place during a beach swim at Byron Bay, a popular Australian tourist destination, while his wife looked on from the shore. Holidaymaker Mark Hickey was there, and he describes how he tried in vain to save Wilcox's life. A woman saw Wilcox in the sea and alerted this man, um, a simple holidaymaker, just uh, doing his thing on the beach. He'd gone for a swim about 20 minutes earlier. And uh, it's it's the time of year where um, there isn't there aren't a lot of alerts as yet at this beach. Um, apparently, the the shark season as such, or the danger time, uh, only kicks in in about two weeks' time. So it seems like they were caught unawares. Well, here we have the story from the Telegraph. I saw probably fifty feet off the beach beyond the sandbar what looked like a, a, a massive I thought it was a turtle um, and then I looked closer there's a lot of blood in the water and there was a shark circling and um, but I, I recognised that it was a person there was a lady next to me that said it's a person um, and I was in a, a bit of a confusion as to whether or not to, to swim out to that person and try and bring them into the beach I ran out um, to about chest high in water and grabbed the guy um, and dragged him into the beach. Um, the shark was probably maybe 40, 50 feet away um, and then um, I dragged him onto the sand and we then tried to give him CPR and mouth to mouth for about 20 minutes. Um, he'd been, been attacked in the leg and he'd obviously bled to death in the water. Well, it's stipulated, oh, sorry, speculated that um, the shark was a great white shark. Um, obviously, those sharks are protected, and uh, thankfully, nothing will be done to, um, t- there won't be measures taken to destroy the animal. Uh, now on to an elephant that I mentioned a few weeks ago, um, that wildlife campaigners in India rescued. His name is Raju, and he was a starving elderly elephant chained up and uh, this group went along and rescued him and video footage at the time and photographs showed him crying at his release 
and of course millions of people from around the world were moved. So it's now been revealed that Raju may be returned to the owners who abused him after they filed a legal petition for his return as their lawful property. Now, elephants are protected by law in India, but several thousand are still kept by unscrupulous owners and abused by their handlers. They're used for all sorts of things, for taking children on rides, for taking um, uh, people on rides at, at weddings. Uh, they're used on mountainsides in arid regions of uh, northern India, where elephants are, or Indian elephants in particular, are, are not um, meant to stay at all. They should be in jungle areas. And uh, they're used to take tourists up and down steep hills. So obviously generating a lot of money for their handlers. Well, uh, the video footage that we saw recently was of Raju's release, which showed that his legs had been unshackled from these heavy chains that he'd been kept in. And the group who rescued him, Wildlife SOS, will contest the owner's claim on grounds of their cruelty and saying that the self-proclaimed owner has no ownership documents. Wildlife SOS says the animal is recovering after being rescued. Um, he was on the verge of death when he was rescued, and the group has invested a lot of time and money to rehabilitate him. So let's hope that they take their, um, their case to courts and uh, win. That's what we're looking for. Um, we spoke also about a polar bear. I don't know if you remember him. He was dubbed the world's loneliest animal, and there were photographs of him. His name's Arturo, Arturo um, and he's been living in a zoo where it reaches up to 40 degrees centigrade in Argentina. And a lot of people said he looked depressed. His uh, animal experts were saying that his movements indicated that he was a depressed animal. And um, there was a worldwide campaign to release um, Arturo from the zoo, and uh, it fell on deaf ears, unfortunately. However, it seems that something really good has happened. Um, the lonely polar bear has found friendship with, believe it or not, a stray cat. So a stray cat has made its way into his enclosure and decided to stay. The two of them are now creating a whole a whole new news story around the world. They keep each other company during the day. At nighttime, they cuddle up and they even share food. So it looks like the 29-year-old polar bear, um, his loneliness may be short-lived. And hopefully he's not depressed anymore as he spends his time in captivity. Um, also in the news is a police dog in the U.S. which is being buried with full honors after dying in the line of duty. Here's Captain Dexter Nelson. Greatly appreciate the sentiments and the well-wishing and the prayers that everyone are expressing. Our website uh, took over two million hits as of today. Well, that's a three-year-old Belgian-German shepherd named Kai and he had served with the department's K-9 unit since 2012. Kai was partnered with Sergeant Ryan Stark, and the two of them shared a very close bond. The tragic incident occurred while Stark and Kai were attempting to stop a car thief um, who was armed with a hidden knife. Okay, time for Doggy Style now on heavy petting. If you do want to give us a call, by the way, 0861 uh, You can also tweet me. My Twitter handle is at Leanne Mole. That's L-E-I-G-H. A-N-N-M-O-L. You can also message us to the show directly on WeChat. Um, your, your messages will come up straight on our screen, so you can do that with the greatest of pleasure. We'd love that. Um, so on to doggy style. Um, a leading animal charity has suggested that a rise in the number of abandoned huskies could be linked to the popularity of shows like Game of Thrones. You remember last week uh, we had 
um, the Husky Rescue SA, which is a charity I support, come in. Jasper from the charity came in to chat to us about um, Huskies. And obviously, you know, this is dependent a lot on movies. Um, I remember during the time of Lassie, um, every child wanted one of those dogs. And now it seems that the same thing's happening. And it's due to shows like Game of Thrones. Well, here's a report by ODN's Sarah Kerr. The leading animal charity has warned that huskies are on the most unwanted dogs list for the first time. The Blue Cross charity has seen a 700% increase in the number of abandoned husky-type dogs in the last five years, and they suggest this could be linked to popular TV shows like Game of Thrones and the Twilight films. It's thought that fans of the show and films are believed to have rushed out and bought wolf-like breeds without considering the problems of owning such a large and energetic pet. We are seeing um, a rise in the number of husky puppies or husky-type puppies that we're seeing in our care throughout the nation. Blue Cross are just trying to promote um, responsible pet ownership and making sure that people are actually knowing what they're taking on with regards to a husky puppy and advising um, them in the correct way to handle them when they're older. The charity, which has recently welcomed the birth of nine adorable husky puppies, said they can't prove the link, but suggest the timings of the show tie in with the rise in abandoned wolf-like dogs. Well, uh, as mentioned, we had Husky Rescue in SA in uh, the studio just a week or two ago. And uh, we also had the peeps from Ark Animal Center, um, who came to tell us about some animals that they had wanted up for adoption. Um, and I think it may have inspired old Jeffrey, who works with us here. Yeah. <laughs> um, he's been walking around like a proud dad with photographs of his mm-hmm. baby. And tell us about him. Is it a girl or a boy? So it's a boy. His name's Diamond. He's okay. a, he's a, he's a pedigree Pomeranian. You see, this so, is the thing. So, These pedigree dogs end up at yes. homes. You don't realize. So, um, we got him from Ark Animals yeah. last weekend. Um, we, d- we decided to get him because, um, we, we, we didn't want to get a puppy because everyone seems to adopt the puppies. So how old is he? He's two years old. Okay. So it, it doesn't matter at the end of the day because, I mean, it's, he's not, it's not old. Two years old is yeah. not, it's not, it's not a, a senior dog now. No, it's so, still sprightly. Exactly. So, um, yeah, we decided to get him and he's very cute, awesome little dog. So you can vouch for awesome, cute little dogs coming from Ark Animal Definitely. Center Definitely. and Definitely. the fact that they're still cute and awesome even though they aren't puppies. Exactly. And um, you can still train them. He's not too old to not learn how to how to you know yeah. be a be a good dog. Um, so yeah, definitely. Oh. Don't don't just go for the puppies. Take take some of the older ones. Yeah, and they're really cute. So they're overlooked quite often. In fact, yeah. last week we had um, Santon SBCA come in and launch their calendar, which is called Golden yeah. Oldies featuring all of the older dogs who are sometimes overlooked when it comes to the adoption process. Well, I think that's awesome, Jeffrey. Congrats. Yeah, and, um, thank you so much. I hope he behaves himself. He Not like, he's very good. Yeah. He's, he's very good. He's, he's good. He, he's, he, he, he was sterilized last week, so he's very, like, he doesn't really move much, but yeah, he's, he's, he'll his, get there. He's had his manhood seen too. Exactly. Feeling a little ego bruised. Mm. <laughs> um, well, I hope he's not naughty like this dog. Vets in the U.S. last week retrieved some unbelievable objects from the stomach of a dog. A Great Dane was discovered to have 43 and a half socks in his stomach. Socks. The dog was taken to an animal hospital after he experienced multiple bouts of vomiting and loss of appetite. 
They took him to the vet. X-rays showed huge amounts of unusual stuff lodged in his abdomen. And they turned out to be a large number of socks. The socks had to be surgically removed before the dog was sent home. There have been loads of photographs sent around because it just looks amazing to see, um, you know, in a photo, all these socks lined up next to each other. You line up 43 and a half socks and um, you'll see how much stuff was stuck in his stomach. Well, USA Today has the story. The person on the clothing attracts them. Sprawled out on a rack, the unlikely snack of a three-year-old Great Dane with a problem. And he did have a history of uh, a preference for socks. The dog in this x-ray showed up at Dove Lewis Animal Hospital with 43 and a half socks in his belly, enough to clothe a small classroom. Geez, we uh, opened up his stomach and just kept... Uh, Removing sock after sock of all different shapes, colors, and sizes. And go for it. Sure, dogs don't have the most discriminating of tastes, but 43 socks. How do they even fit? At this park, we meet Claude the Great Dane. His owner says Claude at least knows when to say when. Kind of. Can you imagine yours doing that? No. He's destroyed a lot of socks. He hasn't eaten any yet. We make sure to close our sock drawer because he would if we let him. I've never, ever taken out uh, that many socks out of one patient before. The feet of eaten feet covers impressed more than staff surgeons at Dove Lewis. Their x-ray won second place in the They Ate What contest for veterinary news. Dove Lewis will use its $500 prize to help cover vet bills for patients who need extra help and maybe another pet with a taste. I think I took out half a bikini top last night. For the wearable. And we're always here 24-7. I had a friend once whose burbul ate an entire set of antlers um, and a pin cushion. <clears throat> yeah. Um, well, Joey, this always amazes me how they were 43 and a half socks. It's like pairs of shoes. You know, I've had, I think I had counted at one stage, 13 shoes which had been eaten up by my little miniature pincher, Joey. They were all from different pairs, but there they were. Okay, so maybe that's a sign of lack of intelligence. Maybe it's not. How clever is your dog? You can now find out if your dog ranks among the 10 brightest breeds and also whether smarter dogs make better pets. They might not. So you might think that your beagle is the most intelligent dog on the block, but he's got the dubious honor of being among the least trainable of dog breeds. Yep, beagles, not easy to train. Uh, Dobermans, very quick studies, very easy to train. Um, so dog intelligence, like human intelligence, comes in various forms. And although the best in any breed can be nurtured by owners willing to put in extra time and effort, there are some realities that we have to face when it comes to your animal's inherent qualities, their DNA, um, their history. If a dog is bred to, bred to hunt, herd or retrieve, the dog is more likely to be quick on its feet, eager to work, fast to learn, uh, eager to please you. Um, and then you get the breeds who are more livestock, guard dogs, sheep dogs, or they may be scent hounds. And uh, they generally seem a little bit distracted and just a little bit dense sometimes when you ask Fido to sit. Um, now, even though some of the breeds are more nimble and fit and quick, Trainers say that any dog can learn the basics, like sitting and staying. How intelligence in a dog is measured is by how long it takes them to catch on to the demand or the command that you've given them. 
this is key to knowing about um, whether your animal is built for training and how best to motivate him as well. So keep in mind, though, that the most clever dogs don't often make the best pets. You need to find a breed that suits your lifestyle, um, and it may not be intelligence that matches that. So in his best-selling book, The Intelligence of Dogs, um, written by a neuropsychologist, Stanley Korn, he focuses on trainability as the marker of intelligence. So he had 110 breeds put out in front of him with 200 professional dog obedience judges, uh, gave them various commands, and he scored the breeds based on their working or obedience tests. So the top dogs absorbed commands in less than five repetitions. So you would teach them something new like rollover, and in less than five repetitions, the dog learned what rollover was. Also, they needed to obey this in the future 95% of the time or more. So we start our list of the top 10 most intelligent dogs in the world. In 10th place, it's the Australian cattle dog. Let's listen to what they, uh, what they do in their lives, Australian cattle dogs. The Australian cattle dog. Looking for some canine chutzpah? Enter the Australian cattle dog. These are really hard-nosed dogs. Need enduring friendship too? Australian cattle dogs don't disappoint. They are devoted, dedicated, loving, very loyal dogs. With some famous human dads. I'll just say that a lot of hot guys have Australian cattle dogs. Like Matthew McConaughey, Mel Gibson, and country singer George Strait. It's a good bet these manly men are drawn to the athleticism of these rough-and-tumble working dogs, which were bred with one thing in mind. They are what the name implies, great at driving cattle. Or in this case, sheep. But it's no secret where this robust and intelligent dog calls home. The Australian cattle dog was developed in the 1800s in Australia. Australian settlers needed a dog with stamina to drive cattle long distances across rugged terrain. Their solution? Cross Blue Merle Collies with the Australian Dingo. The Australian cattle dog has long had a penchant for nipping at the heels of livestock to drive them forward. And so today, this hardy herding dog is also known by two other names. One is the blue healer, and the other is the red healer. Blue and red refer to this medium-sized dog's rain-resistant double coat. The outer coat is dense, straight, and lies flat, so rain beads off it. And the coat can be bluish-gray or brownish-red. And while some Australian cattle dogs are plain-faced, many conjure up pirate imagery because they're sporting a mask. There might be a mask over one eye, which is sort of you know, like a very striking appearance, or the double mask. And this feisty breed has a long undocked tail with a slight curve and good brush. If you're thinking of bringing an Australian cattle dog into your home, think carefully. These dogs can adapt to different environments but demand a high level of physical activity. Two to three hours a day of vigorous exercise for this dog. They're relatively healthy though. The average lifespan of the Australian cattle dog is 15 years. However, deafness and blindness are known to affect the breed. Grooming requirements are low. 
But the short-haired dogs may need a bath more often than most dogs, just because they tend to play rough. Training should be a rewarding experience, though, because these pooches are highly intelligent. But if you have children, be careful. These high-energy dogs could nip at their heels. On the other hand, once they settle on a favorite family member, they're devoted to the end. To review, the Australian cattle dog needs vigorous exercise regardless of where it lives. It's a generally healthy dog that's easy to groom and train, but because of its herding instincts and high-energy personality, it might not be the best choice for families with small children. If you've got an active lifestyle and you're looking for a canine companion to go the distance with you, the Australian cattle dog just might herd you right into its heart. Well, there you go. The Australian cattle dog, happiest doing a job like herding, obedience or agility, very energetic, very intelligent. In fact, number 10 on our list of the world's most intelligent dogs. That's it for doggy style on heavy petting. Uh, before we do leave that, though, thanks very much to Brad, who sent in a message. This is after we spoke about a great Dane who'd swallowed 43 and a half socks. Um, Brad says, my Malamute swallowed my sister's secret sock. Those are those little airy guys that you wear that no one can see. Shh, secret. Right in front of me. I found it a couple of days later when cleaning, in inverted commas, the garden. Uh, my sister didn't want the suck after that. Well, Brad, I'm not surprised. Um, but uh, it just shows how this stuff happens right in front of our eyes sometimes. We just need a watch. Okay, time for what's new, Pussycat, here on Heavy Petting. Now, SciShow has tackled one of the cutest questions ever, I think, and that's why do cats need? Now, we've heard lots of theories um, we've heard that it's something that they do as babies. But did you know that adult cats, and I mean domestic cats, hold on to kitten-like behavior, but wild cats don't? All the answers await in this clip. So you know when your cat comes up to you and it starts to look at you and it seems happy, it's purring, and then it tries to make biscuits out of your body? It's so cute. It's cute. Because Kitty loves you. But it's also painful because Kitty's love is made out of little tiny knives. Why does it do that? Why? There are theories. Of course, some animal behaviorists believe that it's another way for cats to mark their territory since paws have scent glands in them. The most popular theory, however, is that kneading is a neotenic behavior, a juvenile trait that is retained in adulthood. Because kittens need their mother's bellies to stimulate milk production. This would explain why some adult cats also suckle whatever it is that they're kneading. However, adult wild cats do not need. So, why have domestic cats retained this trait? Well, Neotenic behaviors are most often found in domesticated animals, like house cats, partly because over the millennia, humans have selected for traits that make animals more social, less aggressive, and generally nicer to be around. But the animals have probably also held on to some of their more social, baby-like behavior, just because it serves them well when they're around people. Like, I don't know if you've heard this, but wild cats are not super social. They don't come up and cuddle so much as try and eat your flesh. Felis Silvestris, the ancestor of all domestic cats, is a solitary hunter that only socializes with members of its own species when it's time to breed. So wild cats only develop social behaviors for two situations. One is, hey baby, why don't you come back to my burrow and we can make a little something something. And the other is caretaking behaviors between mother cats and their kittens. Unlike wild cats though, domesticated cats have a lot of social behaviors as adults because they're not wild loners anymore. They have us to cuddle with 
pawn treats out of and demand food from. So their innate tendencies for snuggling with mom and hitting on the lady cats are put to good use on us. Hence, needing, originally a behavior that kittens needed to survive, is now a way for adult cats to show that they trust you and feel safe. And if you had a soft pelt like mom, you wouldn't feel so much of the little knife. Okay, that's it for uh, what's new, Pussycat, here on Heavy Petting. Uh, we're going to take a little song break. Um, when we come back, we chat to Safari Group Singita, which is making a profound difference to conservation across Africa. We also talk about the shocking amount of foods that we'll lose forever if bees become extinct, and a new dinosaur has been discovered, and you won't believe what scientists have called it. We'll be back. Seems to be the way that it used to. Everything seems shallow. God, give me truth. In me, and tell me somebody's watching over me. And that is all I'm praying that someday.
A little bit of love and a bit of a ballad from Britney Spears. Someday, uh, maybe someday all animals will leave, live in peace and harmony. That's my Miss World-esque wish. And uh, speaking of which, we move on to Help a Horny Friend here on Heavy Petting, where we take stock of where we stand in the fight against rhino poaching and also look at the latest in the news. Now, we've spoken before about the South African government's efforts to step in. They're planning a huge relocation of about 500 rhino from the Kruger National Park into various undisclosed locations like um, private parks and private game reserves. And uh, this hasn't taken place yet. However, one of the rhino which was moved um, to a game lodge in Michalisburg for protection has now been killed. Uh, Conservationists, police and volunteers are tracking two poachers over the Michalisburg area after the rhino co. was poached. Um, now, depending on who you speak to, some are calling her Isabella, some are calling her Charlize. Um, that rhino was rescued a few weeks ago from the liquidated Aloe Ridge Hotel and Nature Reserve at Bruderstrom after her mate disappeared. And it's now believed that her mate must have been poached um, because uh, this is now what's happened to her upon her relocation. So this was at about 2.10 um, a.m. Monday morning when two shots were heard and then staff at Glen Afrique Lodge um, found themselves on the scene of the poaching. The horn had already been removed. The two poachers were escaping through thick bush and unfortunately the rhino was dead. So police who were patrolling the area arrived soon afterwards and began a chase. Um, the tracking team has followed the pair of poachers high into the Michalisburg Mountains and are apparently hot on their heels. So we'll follow that story. Well, now, when we think of luxury safari brands, we think of world-class accommodation, the gaming experience, the food experience. Well, luxury safari brands can no longer function as only that. They will not survive if they function as only that. So more and more, these safari companies are playing a massive role in conservation and education, sometimes even more than the groups who were initially um, set up to, to play these roles. So Singita comes to mind. This is one group who are making a really big difference in many parts of Africa. Um, they've been orchestrating an interdependent relationship between communities, wildlife, and tourism. They're getting right in there into the communities um, to try and track down poachers and also to educate. Now, um, I had the fortunate um, uh, opportunity of going to Cape Town and chatting to Two people from Zingita. One is Lindy Rousseau, who you'll hear in the interview, who is the sales and marketing director for Zingita, and also Mark Whitney, who's the COO for Zingita. Let's take a listen. Really, though, what, what wasn't known about Zingita is that it is primarily a conservation company, that our purpose is all around conservation. Our purpose is about protecting these huge tracts of land in Africa that are so under threat at the moment. Um, and, and hospitality, tourism, the luxury element is, is a means to an end. Actually, it's a way of generating awareness, first of all, and secondly, revenue to be able to fund this model in order to protect this land, which we now ha have close on a million acres of land that we have under curatorship that we look after. So where do these million acres lie? Uh, in South Africa, in the Sabi Sand, in the Kruger National Park, where we have a private-public partnership with sand parks, in um, Tanzania, in the Serengeti, um, in Zimbabwe, and soon to be in, well, and in Mozambique. That actually mm. is secured mm. in Mozambique. So all in Africa. 
Yeah. Do you think it's possible to run a tourism um, company or, or uh, work model without involving conservation, or do you think they just go hand in hand automatically? I think we believe that longer term, if you're not doing both, no, you won't be able to survive. And, and in fact, that these big pieces of land are under more and more threat and are going to become more and more rare, and therefore the responsibility of the companies that are involved is going to become that much greater um, in terms of conservation and, and community as well um, okay. in order for, to, for them to, to survive going forward. Yeah. Obviously, community is hugely important in this um, um, they, I don't think much progress would be made if the community weren't involved. Am I right in saying that? It's essential. Yeah. It's, yeah. Without the community support, you can't do these things. I and mean, if you have a hostile community on your boundary with a protected area, it's going to be under siege all the time. Mm-hmm. So there has to be community involvement and support. Do you think the community has more insight than um, the people you'd expect to have insight into poachers' mm-hmm. movements, um, you know, whether there are people who've come into the communities who might be shacking up for, for a week or two while they make their plan um, to, to go in. Completely. They know, they, you know, those communities are tight. They, they're quite big communities, quite often, like outside the Kruger Park. It's not an unpopulated area by any means, but I tell you that they know every single thing that's going on. The problem is, is of course, if the, if there's this, this culture of being anti-impimpies, as they're called. So, you know, anybody who speaks out against these things is liable to come under serious threat, pay so the price. they mm. pay the price. So it's, yeah. it's difficult, but, but we believe they know everything that's going on. They know who the poachers are, they know where the, where the, the horns go, they know a lot about it. And we, and we have good intelligence. The trouble is the political will to follow up on that intelligence. Yeah, and would, there be, would something like an incentive scheme work with, with the community members? does sometimes. Um, there's lots of incentive schemes out there right now. To what extent they're being effective, I'm not sure. I think you get better results from, interestingly, in those communities, in spite of this, this culture of, of opposition to, to, to pimpies and people you know, telling things as they are, there are some conservationists, some real yeah. conservationists in those we communities. Genuinely believe. I mean, we know one in Mozambique who puts his life on the line every day to give us information. It's, it's incredible he's still alive, but he does it because he believes in the cause. I, th- I think people forget um, in this whole rhino issue, we, we think about the animals, but the, the danger to human life yes. is just yes. something else. And I think that's the challenge with incentives is, you know, a human life, an incentive can't replace a, a human life. So mm. I think that's always the, the challenge for the, even if there are locals who, you know, people in the community who do want to help, you know, the fact that their lives are under threat really mm. does affect whether they're going to come forward or not. Um, I mean, our approach has been very much around education. And, you know, that unfortunately is a slow process. Uh, but we're, ha- we're having some amazing success in being able to help communities understand the value of non-poaching, so the value of preserving wildlife rather than than, than poaching it. Um, and we have a number of, well, our entire anti-poaching units um, that we employ to look after our land were all poachers before. And then, oh, and then that's interesting. 100%. Yeah. So they, they're the very best people to be policing the poachers because they know every single trick in, in the book. So they, they kind of are converted to conservation. How were they converted? I mean... Is it, it must you know, poaching is not done as a, as a lifestyle choice. It's mm-hmm. done out of necessity. Mm-hmm. So, you know, give me an alternative. I won't poach. It's, it's not difficult to convert a poacher to being a scout if he's going to 
live a reasonable life and be Earn paid an and have yeah. a, some stable income. I mean, it's, it's poverty-driven. It's poverty-driven, yeah. But, but the levels to which it takes somebody off poverty and puts them into extreme wealth is just ridiculous. If you see what's going on in those little villages on the other side of the Kruger Park and in the Mozambique side, where you drive through a village which is just little, really, really basic grass shelters, and then all of a sudden there's this two-story white painted home, with, in one case with a, a statue of Jesus on the roof, yeah. with his arms outstretched like the, like the uh, Rio statue. Yes, and a BMW. And, a, and, and well, not normally. Or normally it's, it's, it's double cabs. They like yeah. double oh, cabs. So right. There's four double cabs in the garage. And, and you know, the, the, the opulence is just incredible compared to and the average village life. So yeah. you imagine the temptation for a, a relatively poor villager who lives a subsistence life to suddenly attain this incredible wealth. I often equated in my mind to um, Somali pirates. Yes. You know, they're, it's they're a sort similar. of community where they have no choice. Yeah. Mm. It's, it's a fight But they survival. go from, from a fight to survival to demanding $10 million for a ship. So, you know, it's a similar sort of thing in this case where you go from a fight to survival, a hard scrabble life of growing cassava and maize and trying to just keep your family alive. To four double cabs in the garage. Mm. You know, it's, yeah. it's just an incredible turnaround. Yeah. But the intelligence is, that we have is, is phenomenal. We, we know who they are because they live these lifestyles, which are for all to see. So quite openly. Quite openly. Yeah. And if you go to Maputo Airport, the people in Maputo Airport will quite openly show you which are the airlines that the porn goes out on. It's only two. Everyone knows them. So you say to yourself, well, why is no, no one searching the containers that are going on to these airlines? Because there is no will. It's two airlines, you know, just, and everyone says, oh, you know, that's the one the horns go out on. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so beyond that, what are, what are your views um, most basically on, on legalizing rhino trade, for instance? Okay, this is yours, Mark. <laughs> we're, we're very strongly opposed to it. I, I, I've, I've written letters to the newspaper, I've, I've made my, my thoughts widely known on this. I honestly believe that by legalizing the trade in the horn, you will just create a much more open and lucrative market for the illegal horns to go into. There's no ways that on the other end of the market, on the, on the, on the demand side of the market, that you will ever control which horn is going into which shop and, and whether it's right or wrong mm -hmm. or legal or illegal. It'll, you know, in, in a few years ago, the, the um, CITES agreed that certain uh, stashes of, of elephant tusk mm -hmm. could be exported to China. It just revived that entire elephant tusk ivory market again. It, you know, the, the, the carvers that had gone out of business came back into business. The dealers, the consumers, everybody suddenly had this free flow of ivory. Once the market is stimulated and the, and the stockpile runs out, the demand doesn't just go away. So, you know, the, here we're talking about a product that goes into Asia, into Southeast Asia and China, markets that are becoming increasingly more affluent at a, at, a, at a rate never previously seen. All of this new money is, these sort of things are very aspirational. Both ivory and rhino horn are hugely aspirational things. If you speak to the, the WWF did a study into the consumer side of the market. And they, they interviewed people who said that they don't use rhino horn now, but if they could afford to, they mm -hmm. absolutely would. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that they said was a very, very common theme, was that they don't really know whether this is legal or not legal. That's the issue. Because they see, the issue. they see pictures of hunted rhino. Mm -hmm. They know that rhino are hunted and shot, and there's a legal side to it. 
How do they know that the, the stuff that they bought in the shop it's that legal morning was legal or not? Mm-hmm. Not that it really concerns them all that much, mm-hmm. but it, but they don't know. So if we create a, a legal market, we just You're just, we just compound it. that confusion. Yeah, I, you know, I think that's the biggest danger is that you then give people you you give people a license to trade in it. Um, and, and, and as you say, how do you know then what's legal, what's not legal? Then it's very difficult to control. I also think that there's a moral issue here because by legalizing it, you're acknowledging that it has value. Mm. When yeah. it's, it's keratin, it's the same as nails or hair. So if you legalize it, you're actually in a way saying, this yes, this does have, minis- does have value. Yeah. So, you know, from a moral point of view, I just think it's, well, you're not, you're not it allowed make one sell, iota of sense. You're not allowed to sell a, a, a remedy, a, a medicine into the market that hasn't had proven Outcomes. Yes, even even skin products and yeah, South Africa, it's very so, so so those that's it's illegal unless it's been tested and all the rest of, and and the efficacy has been proved. Now we are taking a product that we know doesn't work. I mean, it's, there's no scientific basis for it whatsoever, mm. and we're saying let's legalize it. That's a, that's double speak. It's it's mm. you know. Yeah. To me, the, the 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 lobby for the legalization of the rhino horn trade is absolutely self-serving. There are people who are sitting yeah. on large. Stashes, Stashes of, of horn. Mm-hmm. We would yeah. make millions, billions in some cases out of it. Um, it's, it's short-term thinking. It's dangerous as anything. It will stimulate the market. It'll keep the market going. And it'll confuse. And completely. it'll confuse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'll reduce and our ability to We've gone to all this effort to vilify the market, to try and get, even in, in, in Asian countries, to get people to understand the harm that has been caused. You legalize that, you do, you, you, you Undoing undo all of yeah. this. And now we continue the conservation conversation. Um, I recently met up with a honeybee farmer who operates in the Western Cape between Swellendam and Heidelberg. His name is John Moody. He has kept bees for 40 to 50 years now. No, not a spring chicken he is anyway. His father was a beekeeper before him as well. And uh, John Moody was actually the chairperson of the National Bee Body. Uh, and John mentioned that when we think of bees, we think of two things mainly – we think of stings and we think of honey. But bees are actually essential to our lives. Now here's John, who still produces honey and pollinates fruit for farmers. Even beekeepers sometimes lose sight of the importance of the little creature they're working with because so much of the food we eat um, actually depends on the work of, of, the, of the bee, of the honeybee, because without cross-pollination, we just do not actually have the variety or, or the uh, and, uh, type of food that we expect to eat today. Just a small example of this, or quite a big example, is, is almond nuts produced in California. They require 1.7 million beehives to pollinate their crops. And if they don't have bees, they don't have a crop. The little bee actually made headlines last August and in Time magazine, and there was a picture of the bee on its cover. Um, in this country, apples, pears, plums, all depend on bees to be to, for, for for crop set. And in addition to that, the seed production in the Karoo has been totally dependent on bees. And an interesting example was two years ago, when between Barrydale and Darist, the bees didn't work. And as a result, the, the seed companies lost 90 million rand and couldn't fulfill or had difficulty fulfilling their contracts. And are, are people, seed. are people on the ground like you and I who are buying food, do they, do they sense the difference? 
Um, I think basically people today are pretty alienated from the, the food source, sadly. Um, I think people who live in cities go to supermarkets and expect to have what they need on the shelves. When that runs out, then suddenly there will be a crisis. So uh, at the moment, I think an awareness is, is really necessary, um, and, and bees need to be put in, in, in the place that they belong in terms of, of, of the food chain. Because if you take an alternative um, to bee pollination, what do you do? And if you look at the economic alternative, that's hand pollination, which they have to do in China because the bees have died out. So these are people who walk around with gloves and do the pollination, artificial insemination almost. Well, it's artificial pollination with feathers, and they, they'll, ga they'll gather the pollen, they'll stick, <coughs> stick the pollen on feathers, and then they will go around to the trees pollinating the crops to, in order to get fruit set. And if they're not cross-pollinated, I mean, they're different... I mean, certain fruits you get and grasses and oat, um, maize are self-pollinating, so you don't need insects. But all, all the interesting foods we eat now, the nuts, the um, peppers, the onions, the carrots, the beetroot, the leeks, all these interesting foods that we now expect to buy and to have depend on bees for, for pollination. So we're saying if, if the bee population had to die out completely, would we be saying goodbye to these foodstuffs? Yeah, there's a rather uh, interesting quote which is laid at Einstein's door, and I, I don't really think it exists. We've, I've tried to find it, but I don't think he said it, that if the bee pop bees died out, man would also die out. I don't think that's totally true, and I can't find it. But um, certainly all the interesting foods that we eat would, would, would be reduced to wheat, which is wind-pollinated, and maize. And apart from those foods, we would be hard-pressed to get a, a table to, to eat. So we're talking about the beige foods. When someone says to you, your plate looks a little beige, and we wouldn't have any, any of the colored bits that we needed. Yeah, that, that's about it. I mean, a, a modern man expects all these nuts and, and, and um, interesting additions to, to basically bread. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, meat would probably carry on because you, you, you do have um, grasses and, and maize, so, so your cows would be fed yeah. and you would get milk. But those, all those interesting things and the fruits would die out, and we, we depend on those. And what about moths and butterflies? I mean, they're pollinators too. Absolutely, and they, they do a wonderful job. Um, really, why do bees have to be taken into crops? I mean, in nature, these things were looked after. But first of all, a lot of moths and butterflies are threatened and, and are extinct or dying out. Um, the secondly, how do you possibly get the quantity of moths needed to pollinate an orchard? Uh, you, you can't breed up moths and take them in, whereas with bees you can take in hives with twenty to 30,000 bees and conveniently place them in orchards, and they selectively work on those particular crops um, and, and it's very difficult to, to find an alternative. Yeah, I mean, I've never seen a hive of moths. <laughs> they seem to be yeah. quite solitary. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, it, in the Karoo, sometimes on onions, you see lots of moths. Uh, there's an interesting article. In fact, I, I've got it on my phone uh, from a, um, Mariette Brandt, who's just finished her PhD on onion pollination, and she talks about the other insects that pollinate, but primarily in her, her collection of animals or insects. Uh, the most um, prolific 
and the most efficient pollinators were bees. They, they not necessarily, they look for pollen. I mean, pollen is their source of protein, but they go for nectar, and because they're such hairy little creatures, their pollen grains stick on their bodies. It's what's happened in nature since um, time immemorial. Man, uh, if you look at your finger and, and the length of your finger, man has probably existed for the time of your fingernail. The bees have existed for the length of your finger. As long as there have been flowers, there have had to be bees. And so bees have been around for an awful long time. And not only are they good indicators of a healthy environment, but they're also critical in, in making sure that all these threatened species and, and our food chain is, is looked after. So they have a very huge, huge role to play. Yeah. Okay, so in closing, what can a person who is in an urban area um, in Cape Town, Johannesburg, Bloemfontein, PE, East London, Pretoria, do? Um, firstly, if they are confronted or, or happily um, confronted by a swarm of bees in their garden, or if they have a single bee that's floating around their, their, their sitting room, what, what should be done? Well, a single bee is quite easy. You open the window um, and, and, and let the little creature out, and a single bee won't make too much difference to the, the world's population of bees. Uh, swarms are more important, and I think probably the best thing to do is to contact a beekeeper to remove the swarm, don't be surprised if he, he expects his costs to be covered. But um, certainly, n unless they are in a really inaccessible place, you, you, you try not to exterminate them. Urban beekeeping is huge in Europe, um, where they keep bees even on the Musée de Beaux-Arts in, in Paris, and they produce honey at a premium rate because it's from the trees in Paris. They're doing, the, they're doing it on rooftops in, in urban areas. That's right, and I think there is space for that, but please remember that our bees are not the mild, gentle European bees that they're using. Our bees are aggressive. Oh, they've got an African flavor, they do. They have a huge African flavor, and if you're going to do it, make sure that you're not going to put anyone else at risk because they can get out of hand and sting and, and be very unpleasant. So get advice from a beekeeper. There are, if you, if you are in... in sort of doubt about who to phone. There are beekeeping associations. There are internet groups. Um, there's an apiculture group. There's Bees SA. And if you post on that, a beekeeper in your area is likely to pick it up and could probably come and help you. Um, but please be aware of, of the importance of those little bees um, to our own, own livelihood and, and to the well-being of the whole environment. That's honeybee farmer John Moody, who I met up with uh, just a couple of days ago. And uh, he has kept bees for 40 to 50 years, definitely knows what he's talking about. And uh, I think we should take heed to his advice. Well, uh, time to move on now to um, a new discovery um, as we look at discoveries on heavy petting. A new giant prehistoric monster has been revealed, possibly the biggest ever. They've called him Dread Nautis, and I shall explain. Um, he's the newest dinosaur discovery, and the species was enormous. Here's Epic Wildlife. A new prehistoric monster was just revealed, and it's massive. Drexel University professor Ken Lacovara named this giant species Dreadnoughtus, which means fears nothing. 
Well, it's not confirmed yet. This could be the largest land animal to have ever lived. Do you know what the biggest animal on land is today? That's right. It's the African elephant. Dragnatus was so big, it weighed as much as 12 elephants. It was as long as five full-size vans and as tall as a three-story building. Could you imagine encountering one of these in the wild? And what's even more incredible, it wasn't even fully grown yet when it died. Its tail was quite muscular and was believed to be used as a weapon to whiplash any potential predators that might be stupid enough to attack this massive creature. This monster belongs to the family of Titanosaurian sauropods, and its discovery has opened the door to the idea that there may have been even bigger dinosaurs that roamed our planet. When it was living during the Cretaceous era, almost 80 million years ago, it was clearly one of the biggest dinosaurs around, weighing seven times that of a T-Rex. Luckily for other dinosaurs, it was just a vegetarian. Can you imagine how many plants it would have to eat on a daily basis? The fossil was discovered in the southern Patagonia region of Argentina, a hotspot for unearthing dinosaur bones. This happens to be the most complete fossil of a titanosaurian sauropod dinosaur ever found, with over 70% of the remains still intact. A professor of anatomy at Ohio University was quoted saying, It's a pretty good one. Most often, they're not anywhere this complete. While well, this discovery was just revealed, the bones were actually brought to the U.S. a few years ago for studying and will be returned to Argentina sometime next year. If you haven't heard about the Megalania, then you got to check it out. If you're new here, subscribe, and I'll catch up with the rest of you guys right now in the comments below. There's one animal we don't know much about. One we think we know about is the trout. I mean, how complicated could a trout fish be? Well, I bet you didn't know that trout could be just as clever as chimps when it comes to hunting for food. It turns out that these fish actively find hunting partners to help them get their fins on some food. Here's Elizabeth Hagedam from Newsy Science. As it turns out, trout could be as clever as chimpanzees, at least when it comes to choosing the best hunting partners to help them nab some grub. According to a new study, coral trout not only solicit the help of moray eels to improve their chances of getting their next meal, but they also are pretty picky when it comes to choosing the best eel for the job. Wired quotes Alex Vale, one of the researchers involved in the study. Prior to our study, chimpanzees and humans were the only species known to possess both of these abilities. I think the evidence is mounting that fish have more going on in their heads in terms of cognition than they've been given credit for. To investigate this behavior a little more closely, the researchers decided to mirror an experiment that was originally conducted on chimpanzees back in 2006. In that experiment, one chimp had to free another from a cage so they could both tug on a rope together and release food that couldn't be reached by just one chimp's efforts. The chimps were able to figure out when they needed help getting to the food and when they didn't, an assessment that until then was considered to be unique to humans. So in the adapted version of that chimp experiment, researchers placed coral trout in an aquarium containing a decoy moray eel and a frozen bait fish. Sometimes the researchers left the bait fish out in the open, and other times they hid it in a crevice. And just like the chimps, the trout learned only to employ the help of the fake eel when they really needed it. An evolutionary anthropologist who worked on the original chimpanzee study told Wired he thinks these new findings are exciting and that they challenge the idea that only animals that look like us can be smart. 
In fact, dozens of studies conducted over the years have found that fish are indeed intelligent. There's evidence that they can use tools and that they have impressive long-term memories and sophisticated social structures. But the study's authors say they still don't know exactly what's going on inside the trout's brains when they join forces with eels to get their fins on some food. They could be thinking along the same lines as us when we cooperate with other human beings, but it's possible they have a different thought process altogether. The study was published Tuesday in the journal Current Biology. For Newsy, I'm Elizabeth Hagedorn, Multiple Sources, A Broader View. Well, that wraps up heavy petting on Cliff Central for this week. Next week, we'll look at a trio of animals who are very clever. One of these animals will probably surprise you. I didn't know that they were clever at all. Um, okay, so just a very quick thank you to Dan the Man, who sent us a message on WeChat, um, who says he's speaking about um, a feature that we had earlier on the most intelligent dogs in the world. We looked at number 10, which is the Australian cattle dog, and they're also known as Australian healers. The reason, not not healing as in making someone better, but because they nip at the heels of of cattle. And uh, Dan the Man says, hey, Leanne, great show listening for the first time. Welcome, Dan. Very informative and interesting. We love you. Um, Australian healers are great dogs, and I used to have one as a child in Zimbabwe. Sheila was her name. Uh, pretty fitting, Sheila. And uh, she was extremely loyal. Good to hear that. And remember, next week you can do the same can send us messages on WeChat as you listen to us live. See you next week.